Well, we're in a, our series called Jesus, the Untold Story on the book of John. We're looking at the stories that only John tells about the life of Jesus. And we talked about how the other Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, tell us a lot about what Jesus did. But John tells us about who Jesus was and how we see him uh, displayed in his actions and today specifically uh, about a miracle that we're going to be looking at, the miracle of turning water into wine. Now, before we talk about that, let me just tell you something. I grew up, maybe you identify, I grew up in not just a non-alcoholic home, but in an anti-alcohol home. My father had some family members who were alcoholics, and because of that, he had seen the very worst of alcohol, and so he was adamant, and he drilled it into our heads that we were to avoid alcohol totally. And uh, to be honest with you, I was afraid of my dad on this one area, uh, probably the only place I was really afraid, but he was very adamant about that because of his feelings. And looking back, I am grateful for that, to be honest with you, because he kept me out of trouble, protected me as a teen and as a young adult, and that's never really been a struggle for me. I realize that not everybody here, however, grew up in that setting, that some of you grew up in homes where alcohol was used moderately and, uh, and responsibly, and, uh, and, and that's great. Others of you have seen the terrible abuse of it through family members. You know, President Trump tells that his brother was an alcohol, alcohol your own stories about your, he does not drink because he has seen the worst of it. Some of you could share your own stories about your struggle with alcohol, how that you discovered that it can be a, a bring out a person in you you don't like, or even one drink could send you spiraling to a place that you do not want to go. And, you know, the reality is that we have to kind of approach this whole topic with a little bit of caution and sensitivity and honesty and integrity is really where I want to go there in this. And, and I know that we have people here who, who definitely uh, don't have a problem taking a drink, which is fine. Some people who say, I would never take a drink in my lifetime. Others of you who are kind of like me because of your conscience, you say, that's just not a, a place I want to do. And, and so uh, we live uh, today in, an, in a place where it's all around us, obviously. We're in bourbon country. We have vineyards on every corner. So it's a sub subject that we need to talk about periodically, and this gives us a great time to do just that. The church I grew up in was kind of went along with my dad's philosophy, which was fine, and they implied that the wine in the Bible was not alcoholic. Not sure anybody ever said that, but there was always that implication that it wasn't, which of course is not true. So there were issues whenever we came to scriptures like this in John chapter 2, where we talked about a miracle of turning water into wine. It's a story, again, that only John tells, the first miracle that Jesus worked in Cana. So let's jump in and read that story, John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best for till now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, that's an interesting story, and if you are not familiar with the Bible, maybe you never even heard that before. Maybe you're familiar with it, but the story, I think, brings a lot of questions out. A lot of things come up about it that come to my mind. First of all, like, what's up with Jesus and his mother? Seems to be some tension going on there in that relationship, doesn't it? Just from the outside. And what does he mean about this time not being right or his hour not being at hand? And, and what is the significance of this miracle at a wedding? The whole setting is kind of interesting in it. So let's look kind of at the wedding itself first of all, and then we'll kind of go from there. The reality is that weddings are a very interesting subject. I have three daughters uh, and, and a son, and so I've been through four of them and survived. So I count myself as somewhat of an expert on this. And what I've discovered today is that weddings can go a little bit overboard if you don't watch them. They really can. I knew that would happen. It had the potential. And so Lori and I, we set a budget for our daughters. We said, this is all you get. If you have a $10 wedding, you can have all of it. If you have a $10,000 wedding, you can still have just this amount. It was not $10,000, by the way. Um, and, and, you know, I was really proud of my daughters. They did a great job. In fact, one of them had money left over. I actually wrote her a check to close the account. And that was pretty cool. So they can get out of hand today. We've probably all been to weddings that were just unbelievable, too much money spent. But in that day, if you can imagine, a wedding was probably even bigger than today. Bigger than today. And they lasted not just one day, but they lasted a week. Not the wedding itself, but the ceremony, the feast afterward would last up to a week. And here was the, here was the kind of the schedule. If a woman was a virgin, she would be married on a Wednesday. If she was a widow, she would be married on a Thursday. But the really fascinating thing is that the bride never really knew when the wedding would be. Now, I have one daughter who has a little OCD, and this would have driven her up the wall because it took her a year to plan her wedding, wore us all out, but the bride didn't even know when the wedding would be. She had a general idea, though, and so she would prepare herself along with her bridesmaid, and then the groom would show up unexpectedly with his groomsmen and with the procession to kind of pick her up and take her to the wedding. If you remember, Jesus told another story, a parable about a bridegroom, or a, a, about a bride and also her uh, bridesmaids that were not prepared when the bridegroom came. So we kind of get some picture here, uh, a background about what's going on. So anyway, he would come by, he would pick the bride up and take her off to the wedding which he had prepared for. In that day, uh, the groom's family seemed to pay for everything. The bride might provide a dowry of some sort to kind of throw into the pot, but, but primarily the groom paid for everything, including a week-long feast for everybody that came. And the expectations were pretty high in this. There was a lot of competition along the way, which, by the way, I think happens in our world today, right? When Laurie and I were married 30-some years ago, we had nuts and mints. You could not get away with that probably today in this competitive society, but it would be a great thing to try it. Uh, but at any rate, uh, there's a lot of competition. You know, you got to up, uh, up the, the person before you, right? Uh, but if you ended up going to a wedding, if you were invited to a wedding, it was a great honor. If you did not show up, it was a great insult. Uh, you kind of broke friendship if you didn't show up to the wedding that you were invited to. If you did go, however, uh, and uh, the expectations were pretty high, and if the groom did not provide adequate, the best food and drink, you literally could sue them 
And some of you are thinking, now that doesn't sound too bad because you need to go to a dud wedding and don't get enough to eat. You can sue the bride and groom. So when this particular thing happened at this wedding, when they ran out of wine, it wasn't just an embarrassing thing. It literally was a crime. And so everybody sprung into action. What are we going to do to solve this crisis that, that just happened here? Now, in this particular wedding, we don't know whose wedding it was, but the likelihood that it may have been a friend or even a family member of Jesus because both he and his mother were invited and both of them showed up. And along with them came also Jesus' disciples. They came to the feast with him, and uh, they, so they were invited for, for some level. Someone said that maybe Mary might have even been a part of the wedding party. Maybe this was a fan, close family member because when the crisis comes up, Mary is the one who seems to spring into action. Whenever the, she realizes that they'd run out of wine, she goes probably quietly to Jesus and leans over to him and says, Jesus, they've run out of wine. I think Jesus' response is kind of interesting here. He says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replies, my hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, I mean, you've got to read some things into this. I don't want to read too much, but I'm trying to figure out what is happening here in this relationship, really. Is, is it just me, or does Jesus kind of imply, first of all, he's not going to be involved in this thing. He doesn't have any hand in this. This is not his problem. And he almost brushes her off a little bit abruptly. That's what it seems to me like just in the first reading through it. So you have to ask the question, why did Jesus tell why did Mary tell Jesus they had a problem? I mean, did, did he expect Jesus to run, uh, did she expect Jesus to run down to the wine mart uh, with the water cash that he always carried and, and, you know, help them out? Probably not. I mean, he wasn't prepared for this, and they were probably pretty poor. Had Jesus always done miracles like this to bail her out in the past? No, because this was the first miracle he'd ever done, right? There's no, uh, no evidence at all that Jesus did any miracles as a child. Uh, or anything else to show that he had this ability. Uh, was Mary just being a bossy Jewish mother? Thought about that possibility. Here's the problem. You, you, I want you to go fix it for me. I'm not sure what was going on. But when we look a little deeper at that, I think we might see a little bit of insight of what really is happening. First of all, look at what Jesus said. It's not really as abrupt as it seems to be on the outside. The original language that, that, that he said means, what does this have to do with you and me? What does it have to do with you and me? I think something is happening here between child and parent here. He was respectful, but he knew that this was more than just a question that Mary might be posing to him to solve a supply problem. And he says to her, my hour has not yet come. That seems like kind of a strange statement to say as well. As we look through Jesus' life and ministry and his teachings, when he says my hour, he's talking about the crucifixion. He's talking about everything that's going to push him to the time when he would be arrested and he would be taken to the cross and put to death. And so if Jesus did a blatant public miracle right here, then it's possible that his public ministry would immediately start and it would lead more quickly to his hour than he wanted it for it to happen. Maybe Jesus knew that. Probably did. Maybe Mary knew that. And some suggest that maybe Mary might have been trying to say, Jesus, don't you think it's time? By this time, Jesus had been out of the house. He had gathered some disciples. He was traveling around and teaching a, a little bit. And, and so maybe she thought, you know, now's the time for this to begin. And so she went to Jesus and told him about the need. And, and then, then she kind of let it go. 
I think it's interesting that she didn't like probably we had that stereotypical Jewish mother of that day. She didn't push him like personal plea, Jesus, please, will you just do it for me? Uh, there also didn't seem to be any guilt, like, are you really going to let your family fail? Are you really going to let them be embarrassed by this? She didn't pull out the God card and say, Jesus, if you're really God, you could probably fix this problem. I think it's interesting, all those responses, that none of which we saw, she just came, quietly made Jesus aware of the need, and then, interestingly enough, she stepped back and told the servants to do whatever he told them, he, he told them to do. I think it was in that moment that Mary kind of went from being the authority over Jesus to being in authority under Jesus. I think it was that moment of transition where the child becomes greater than the parent in this situation. And she did tell the servants, just do whatever he says. There wasn't any big drama. There wasn't really a, like a mic drop moment like boom, do it. And there really wasn't a, a lot else. It was just a request. And then she walked away. And I wonder what went through Jesus' mind at the moment. You know, he's like, okay, maybe it's time. Maybe it's time to do something. And so Jesus went over. He told these servants to take six stone jars. Now, these were not little jars. These were not pitchers. They also weren't 55-gallon uh, barrels either. Uh, they were somewhere in the middle. They were 20 to 30 gallons each, probably a, a tall, slender jar that they would use in that day. For, for washing, ceremonial washing, and he told them to fill these jars up with water, and they filled them to the brim. Now, keep in mind, there was no spigot to turn on and water hose. You know, that wasn't that simple. They actually had to draw the water from somewhere, probably either carry the jugs to the well or carry the water from the well to the, the jars. We're not sure which one they did, but at any rate, it was very obvious these guys were busy filling up anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of water in these jars. A lot of water to carry during that time. And so they filled them up to the brim, and that's it. That was the miracle. Have you ever noticed that Jesus' miracles, he didn't say any magic words, he didn't, you know, perform a, you know, a victory dance or anything. He just did it, you know, he just, like, did it, fill them up with water. And then he said to them, okay, take a glass of this water wine, wine water, and take it to the master of the ceremony of reception. See, it was a pretty big deal in that day. They even had an MC at the ceremony to make sure everything ran smoothly. And this was a guy who had to somewhat give it the approval. I've always wondered what the servants thought, you know. Mary said, do, do what he says, but they know what's in the jars, right? They put it there. And, and so we're going to feel really stupid when we carry the guy a glass of water and tell him it's wine. It's like the emperor has no clothes, right? This is water. This, this is not wine. We know. We just put it in there. And I think also it's interesting that Jesus chose to be a little bit anonymous in the miracle. It was a way, maybe somewhat of a compromise. He did the miracle, and yet it wasn't like everybody saw him do it. He told them what to do, and they simply carried the wine to the master of the ceremonies for his approval. Probably only the ones who were around him really knew it. He didn't draw a lot of attention to himself. Here's what it says, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you've saved the best till now. There's a couple of things I think are worth noting. First of all, is that what they had was real wine. 
It was not water, first of all, and it also was not grape juice because it had to pass the taste test of the MC. You know, it wasn't, he couldn't just fake it there. Not only was it wine, but it was also better wine than they'd had before. Not sure if they'd had cheap wine to start with, but this was better than what they had at the beginning. And the custom was you would take the better wine first, and if you had worse wine, it would be used last after everyone had had too much to drink, which maybe describes what the sometime the wedding feast turned into. They probably didn't have like bourbon or whiskey or vodka or anything back then, but they did drink wine, and they didn't drink it because the water was bad, which was another thing we were taught growing up. Well, the water was bad. It probably was more pure than it is today, but it pretty much everyone seemingly drank wine, including Jesus, probably. Silence. Luke chapter 7 says, For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now what this was, this was an accusation that his enemies made against Jesus. There's absolutely no evidence at all that Jesus ever got drunk. Please understand that. It was merely what his enemies accused of. In fact, drunkenness is the sin in drinking any alcohol and it was a problem back then as well as it is today see jesus hung out with sinners he hung out with people who did have problems with alcohol without abusing it himself jesus hung out with those kind of people because he reached out to them but he they did not drag him into their sin now i got to be honest with you and tell you because i have seen the abuse of alcohol a part of me wishes i could say it is a sin to drink that would be fine, but that's not consistent with the Scripture. I will tell you it is an extremely dangerous thing to see. I have not seen, I've not been in the trenches all my life working with people who have addictions, but I will tell you I've seen the destruction that it can bring. I have gone into a house where an individual who bled to death from alcohol poisoning and cleaned it up, all right? So you want to see something sobering, you see that mess where someone died because of alcohol. We've all seen and probably had people that we have known who have been killed or killed somebody because they were drunk when it happened. So I would love to be able to say that is a, uh, the Bible prohibits that. However, it does not. There is some freedom that's given to us. But let me say this. Let me state the obvious. First of all, some people should never drink. Never drink. If you are underage, not only is it wrong, it is a crime. You should never drink. If you know that alcohol is either in your family, a problem for you, a problem because you have a chemical makeup that, that does not favor alcohol, you should never, ever drink. Not even one drink. Not even a drop of that. Because you know it could destroy your life. My friends in recovery can make the very best argument for not drinking at all. They can make a really strong argument. Or maybe you, like me, believe that there really is very little redeeming value in it overall, or for conscience sake, you choose to abstain. And that is fine. That's wise, I think, to do. But let me just say this, that if you choose to exercise your freedom in this, always show good judgment and discipline on the amount you drink. And also be aware of this, that it's not just the influence that alcohol has on you personally, it's also the influence that your drinking has on other people, like children or those who may struggle with it 
uh, themselves. And so for conscience, maybe it's a decision not to do it at all. But whatever you do, listen to this. You need to show grace for people who disagree with us on this. You have to show some grace. There are lots of good reasons not to drink at all, but there's also a lot of scripture, a lot in the scripture about wine. There really is a lot, and you could look that up. Some of you will. You'll Google that just to make sure, all right? But the Bible talks a lot about that. For example, while we choose to use non-alcoholic juice in our communion, I believe that Jesus originally used wine when he gave communion to his disciples. He said to them, truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in the kingdom of God. So Jesus said there's going to be a celebration, there's going to be a feast one day when we get to be with him. Now, all of that aside, all of the whole alcohol conversation aside, let's not miss the miracle, because that really is what we're looking about, and that's where we're going to spend the rest of our time. Here's the miracle that Jesus did. The miracle that Jesus cared enough about this couple and their problem, he decided to do something about it. All of Jesus' miracles had a good reason. And the reason he did this was because there was a crisis here. He cared that they were in trouble. He cared that his mother was upset. And you know what? Jesus cares about the little issues in your life as well. He really does. While you may not believe that God does a lot of miracles in your life, uh, in your time, I want you to think about how blessed you are, how truly blessed you are in your personal life. How much could go wrong in your life and doesn't go wrong? In this world, you see what happens in the lives of other people. How much could go wrong in your life that doesn't go wrong? And do you think that's just, you're just being lucky? I got a feeling that God is much more active in our lives than you and I could ever imagine. That God is doing things that we don't see. Little miracles happen every day. That things don't just work out or do so on their own. I believe that life is a miracle. Conception is a miracle that no one can understand. Birth is a miracle. It's amazing. Birthdays, anniversaries, things we rejoice, experiences we have, blessings we have, even death, all of these are miracles designed as mundane events. And I believe that we experience miracles every day of our life. We just aren't in tune enough with God to really see them as the blessings that they are. So we all have miracles in our life. The fact that you're here today is a miracle. There's no doubt about it. But that also doesn't take away from the clear miracles that Jesus worked in his ministry. This miracle was the first one. And, and by the way, this miracle had a lot of symbolism. It was a very symbolic miracle. It wasn't just something Jesus happened to do. There's a lot of cool things that come from it. First of all, it was at a wedding. That's, that's pretty significant. Why? Because a wedding is a symbol of the return of Jesus in heaven. Did you know that? Every time you go to a wedding, you want to think about that process because Jesus said that he is the bridegroom, the church is the bride of Christ, and we are preparing ourselves now, getting ready for his coming. We don't know when it is, but he's going to come back someday. It's going to take us to be with him for eternity. And there will be a huge feast, not lasting a week, but lasting for eternity. That's pretty cool that his first miracle was at a wedding to symbolize our hope and our, our future with Christ. The jars that Jesus used, do you remember what I said they were for? They were not used for wine. They were used for ceremonial cleaning and cleansing. That meant if you were dirty ceremonial, if you had been touched a dead person or you had sinned or, 
or had some illness or something. You had to be cleansed before you could come to worship. Jesus replaced all of that, but he came to bring cleansing to us. Also, notice that it wasn't just the same wine they had before, which would have been easier probably to have produced, but this was new wine, and it was better wine than before, which, by the way, is also symbolic of Jesus, who is new and better than the old covenant, which he came to replace, the old law in the Old Testament. See how much symbolism there is in this miracle. It wasn't just an act. So much was being implied here through this. You know, Jesus did a lot of miracles. In fact, we'll talk about some more in our study through his life and the book of John. And while Jesus' miracles, uh, Jesus' ministry did not stand totally on miracles, he used them to verify his credibility. Signs and wonders and miracles were done down through history by God, not only through Jesus, but others as well. Even back to Moses, who brought the ten plagues on the Egyptians, and the prophets who healed and restored and did miraculous things, and then Jesus himself, but also the apostles worked great miracles. All of these were done to create faith. And here's what it says in Hebrew 2. This salvation, which was first announced by the, the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs, wonders, and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit, distributed according to his will. In other words, God has always used signs and wonders and miracles to create hope and interest and faith in Christ. But do you notice there he's, the last thing he talks about now, that it's by the gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed to his will, that the power of God is, and the miracles of God and faith in God is created by his Holy Spirit living in our lives. That we don't have to expect to, should not expect to, do miracles ourselves, but by using our gifts to bless others, kind of like what happened yesterday, people served and encouraged, and what's happening now as people work back with our, our students in the back, and what will happen in a few moments when you use, many of you use your, uh, your gifts to, uh, to encourage people and to pray with them or whatever may happen in the, in the next few hours. God uses all of those things to create faith because the purpose of miracles was always to build faith, faith in God and his messengers. Look at the last verse in our scripture there as we wrap up. John chapter 2, verse 11. It says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Was it just a coincidence that Jesus brought a few disciples with him to this wedding, and that he just happened to work a miracle because the, the wine just happened to run out? Probably not. But all of this worked because Jesus was creating or wanting to create deeper faith in his, in his followers. They were already following and loving his teachings, but now he wanted them to have deeper faith in him. And you know what? That's how miracles should affect us today. Our faith should not hang on a miracle. It should not be dependent upon everything working out right in our life, God pulling the miracles off for me. Our faith should not depend upon those things. They don't force faith, but they do invite faith, and they reinforce faith. But our faith comes because we simply believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by the way, that is the greatest miracle of all. The greatest miracle of all is that Jesus Christ, Son of God, born of a virgin, came to our earth, lived a perfect life, died a sacrifice for us, was raised on, to life again on the third day. 
and that guarantees our new life in Christ. That is the greatest miracle of all, and every one of us can experience that miracle. That miracle. And if you've not had that experience, if you have not experienced Christ taking away your sins and purifying you and presenting you holy before God, then I would love to invite you to to experience that today, and I'd love to have a conversation with you. I'll be off to the side over here in just a few moments if you want to come up and just initiate that or or just let me know. I want to talk. I would love to do that or contact me in some way. But while we're preparing for that and as we're thinking about that, not only for ourselves, but the miracle that we might encourage someone else to experience in their life, we're going to take some time to remember what Jesus did for us. And we'll do that through the sharing of communion. And what we're asking you to do this morning is to to take some time to put aside all your other thoughts and all your other things that might crowd your attention and, and want to drag you to think about and just focus on what Jesus did. And how we can worship him through that. And so just in a few moments, we'll invite you to take the cup and the bread. To do this, as Jesus said, in remembrance of me until we will see him in eternity. And then we'll share that meal with him. And the way that we do this here at our church, first of all, if you're a believer, we invite you to come and share with us. But the way we do this is we ask if everyone would come up, these two side aisles come forward to the table. For those who are in the middle, if you could kind of go back this way, those who are on the outside, go around that way. It will just kind of spare us some confusion. So let's pray together as we go into remembrance of what Jesus did. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word, your amazing truth, your interesting, fascinating word. That God, we have the ability to, uh, to see you, not just what you did, but for who you are. That you are the Son of God. God, we want to stand in amazement like the disciples did and Mary did and everybody who was there that day that knew that something special had happened because Jesus was there. Lord, I say that all of us, pray that all of us could say today that something happened to me in worship because Jesus was there. So Lord, we pray that through your word, through your Holy Spirit, we might see Jesus. God, we pray that as we now share in this uh, emblem, the, the bread and the cup, that, Lord, you would bless them and remind us of the reason that we do this. It's not a ritual. It's not just a part of our service. It's a reminder of your immense love for us and the miracle of salvation that came when you laid your life down. We pray all these things in Christ's name.